0: Discussion of ADHD is very prevalent in the news and in social media. Uh, often I hear patients as well as friends and family members stating, you know, I saw a post on Facebook or Instagram or, I don't know, Twitter. Is Twitter a thing anymore? Uh, or TikTok about ADHD and I really related to it. Sh- should Do I have it? Like, should I go get tested? Have you ever heard that, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, I hear it all the time. I also hear it from athletes and patients. Yeah. Like, I think I have it, or I was told I had it or what, what so forth and whatnot.
0: Yeah. And it, I feel like there are so many relatable parts to it. And, and so it makes sense that, that, you know, it's kind of like when you're hearing about astrology signs sometimes to be like, Ooh, that does relate to me. But, um but you know, an understanding that these are also social media posts and videos and maybe are meant for you to pay attention to them. So, you know, while it is true that most people experience periods of inattention or unfocused motor activity and impulsivity, those people that with like an ADHD experience, these symptoms, they have them to a much greater degree. And these behaviors can often interfere with their social lives, their working lives, and just their general mental health. So depending on your age and a lot of other social factors, screening and evaluation for ADHD may have passed you over during your young or formative years. According to CHAD, which is not some guy, uh, CHAD stands for Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. They cited a meta-analysis of 175 worldwide studies looking at the prevalence of ADHD in children, and they found an overall pooled estimate of 7.2% of children worldwide having ADHD. Um, And then there was a 2007 DSM-IV screening of over 11,000 adults for ADHD in 10 countries, including the Americas and Europe and the Middle East, uh, citing the estimates of worldwide ADHD prevalence at at about 3.4%. So according to data collected by the National Health Interview Survey, the prevalence rates among children and adolescents aged 4 to 17 increased over the past 20 years. So that's something that we hear a lot like, gosh, doesn't it seem like so many more people have it these days? And we'll delve into what makes us think that potentially. So for example, the overall rate of diagnosis in 1997 was 6.1% compared to 10.1% in 2016. And again, this is likely related to a lot of factors like better screening or general knowledge of this condition rather than a true increase in ADHD diagnosis. Also, People with ADHD are more likely to experience co-occurring conditions including like learning disabilities and anxiety disorders and conduct disorders and depression and maybe substance use disorders. And thankfully, meaningful research exists to provide helpful data on how to diagnose and manage this condition. So, let's learn more, shall we? And thankfully, we have a wonderful expert guest in the field of neuropsychology to educate us today. Thank you. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni.
1: And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help.
0: We want to be your doctor friends. All right, we're back. I would love to welcome our esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Leslie Godotti bredding um, Dr. Leslie Goddadi-Bredding is a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist, and she's the director of neuropsychology at North Shore University Health System, where she's practiced since 2010. She serves at a national level on the board of directors for the American Board of Clinical Neuropsychology, and she is the chair of the Student Affairs Committee for the American Academy of Clinical Neuropsychology. This is, I've said neuropsychology so many times in <laughs> in the last 30 seconds, I love it. I'm,
1: I'm confused. What does Dr. Leslie do?
0: Uh, She's a neuropsychologist.
1: Oh, thank you for clearing that up for me.
0: (laughs) She's been engaged in clinical research. She publishes extensively on the topics of ADHD, epilepsy, um, minor traumatic brain injuries, and concussion. Um, She conducts neuropsychological evaluations for adults, including yours truly, (laughs) especially those concerned about ADHD. She's also evaluated professional can collegiate athletes for therapeutic use exemption for stimulants related to um, a treatment for ADHD. And when she's not working, she enjoys spending time with her family, and you'll often find her on the sidelines at a sporting event for her daughters who are six and eight years old. Oh, doctor Gadati Gadadi-Bredding, thank you so much for being with us. We are so happy to have you.
2: Thank you for having me, and thanks for making sure everyone knew I was a neuropsychologist. I still think my parents <laughs> are a little confused, so... <laughs>
0: I get it. Well, we'll explain. Actually, I'm going to have you explain. So, you know, give us your origin story. How did, how did you get here to be as a
2: neuropsychologist? Gosh, where do I start? Um, well, when I was in college, I did not know what neuropsychology was or even that it existed. Um, I've always been fascinated by the brain and how it works. Um, and luckily it led me to become a neuropsychologist um, my role is really to evaluate objectively how one's brain works from both a cognitive and an emotional perspective. Um, so my journey, though, let's see, I was my first career was I was a collegiate uh, at, collegiate coach for lacrosse, a defensive coach. Um, and that doesn't pay very well. <laughs> so I worked as a research assistant in neuropsychology at the University of Michigan. And while I was there doing all kinds of cool fMRI studies, they convinced me to go to grad school. Uh, Many, many years later, about seven years later, after schooling and internship and residency, um, here we are as a neuropsychologist.
1: What is a neuropsychologist?
2: Yeah, good question. Sure. Um, So a neuropsychologist first goes to school to get their Ph.D. in clinical psychology. Most people emphasize um, in neuropsychology if they want to be a neuropsychologist. Um, However, you can, after you get your Ph.D. or PsyD in clinical psychology, do an internship specializing in clinical neuropsychology and then a two year postdoctoral fellowship in neuropsychology. So we evaluate patients um, most of the time. However, some neuropsychologists do 100 percent research or teaching. Um, So we kind of have our fingers in a lot of different roles. Um, I'm primarily clinical these days.
0: Meaning you see people in the office for the most part and are assessing them and, you know, providing testing and, and doing some uh, counseling and talking them through potential diag- diagnoses?
2: Exactly. So as a neuropsychologist, uh, we're referred patients who are unsure fr- from their providers what's going on with their thinking abilities, with how they're doing emotionally. So we can really get some evidence, objective testing evidence, to figure out what diagnosis best fits what's going on and how to treat it. Um, Additionally, I should qualify, I'm an adult neuropsychologist, so I see only patients age 18 and up. Hmm. Um, Whereas then there's pediatric neuropsychologists who evaluate kids and adolescents. Yeah.
1: I feel like most people have heard of psychologists and now they've heard of neuropsychologists, but if they were to look up and they decided they, like, who goes to see a neuropsychologist versus who goes to see a regular psychologist?
2: Sure. Um, so regular psychologists, again, can do a myriad of different things, but clinically they're typically doing therapy with patients ongoing on a weekly basis. Um, as a neuropsychologist, we really only see most patients one or two times. Um, One time for the evaluation, uh, which for most people under age 65 is a pretty full day. Mm. Um, And then we see them again about a week or two later to go over our analysis and what we found and what it means for them in terms of next steps.
0: It seems like we just recorded a couple episodes with a a, a pediatric allergist and immunologist named Dave Stukas, who we adore. And... The thing that he he comes back to a lot is clarifying a diagnosis, especially as an allergist of people that think they might have one thing or may think they might have a, a a handful of different problems. And it sounds like Leslie, what what you offer to folks is really maybe helping to clarify their diagnosis. Does that sound about right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Clarify the diagnosis as well as. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes I think what a lot of the patients get out of these neuropsychological evaluations is knowing then where their cognitive strengths are and where their cognitive weaknesses are, and maybe how they can start to use some of those strengths to compensate for their weaknesses, regardless of diagnosis or treatment or next steps. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of the patients I see don't have a treatment, right? If they have maybe longstanding epilepsy or traumatic brain injury they might be past the point of treatment and kind of looking for what now.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, I wanted to focus a bit clearly, you know, the, the topic of this episode is basically, do I have ADHD? (laughs) Which is, you know, we like to frame our episodes around questions that we might be texted or, or, or asked by, by friends or family or patients. But can you give us your expertise? What, what is ADHD? Can you explain it
2: to us as a, as a diagnosis? Yeah. So that's a good question um, because it's changed over the years and it really is a diagnosis of symptoms. Um, As clinical neuropsychologists, we rely on the DSM-5 as our diagnostic manual, as well as the ICD that doctors, uh, MDs, DOs use. Hmm. Um, But ADHD, you know, most people think at any point in time, I must have ADHD because I've lost my phone six times or because I'm always late to appointments. Um, On any given day, you know, sometimes I feel like I have ADHD. Hmm. Um, However, ADHD as a diagnosis is really looking at someone over their lifespan having persistent, inattentive, or hyperactive symptoms that really started before age 12 and are continuing. Um, Aside from that, one can have symptoms of this, like watching a TikTok video and say, yes, I have that. But the symptoms have to really cause evidence of dysfunction in their day-to-day life, Mm -hmm. either at home, at school, with friends. It can't just be, I have these symptoms and everything's great. We won't give the diagnosis then. Yeah. Um, We can get more into the nitty-gritty of ADHD at some point, but um, I guess the other thing to bring up is ADHD is the same thing as ADD. Mm -hmm. Um, We've just changed the terminology and then we have different subtypes of ADHD, like primarily inattentive type, primarily hyperactive impulsive type, or combined type, where you have both inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity together.
0: So those are the like those are the three most common, or those are like the components or subtypes that you would sub- sort of subcategorize someone in if they had met that diagnosis.
2: Exactly.
1: Okay. You mentioned that the. Um... You know, people with ADHD have shown the symptoms before 12. Is that a requirement? Like, can people have it start after the age of 12?
2: So, according to the diagnostic manual, they have to have had some signs and symptoms of ADHD before age 12. However, they don't need to have had a diagnosis uh, because, for example, a lot of really smart people come up with compensatory strategies so that it doesn't impair their school or their home life before that age. Um, and many people are not diagnosed until adulthood when really the demands start to pile on.
1: It seems like it would be a huge diagnostic challenge because I feel like if I walked into your office today and you said, What were you like when you were 10? I'd be like, I don't remember. It's like how how do you how do you get that history for somebody who's an adult walking in and saying, I think I may have it.
2: You're right. We aren't very good at self report in the current moment, let alone Retrospective report from childhood. (laughs) Um, So we have self-report measures that we do try to have patients fill out about their current symptoms, as well as childhood symptoms. Really thinking back to elementary school, kind of ages 5 to 12. And we say, take your best guess as to how you were during that time. Uh, We also do a full clinical interview that, that takes about an hour. So we ask a lot of questions from your childhood. And then it's always best if we can get a collateral report, meaning if I saw you, Jeremy, I might say, hey, can we send these to your mom or dad to also complete about you from when you were a childhood, Because when you were a child, because they may have a very different recollection as to how you were. Um, that's not always possible in adults to get that childhood report from somebody else, but we, when possible, we try. Um, on the other hand, pediatric neuropsychologists always get collateral report. So they have teacher report of that kid's behaviors <laughs> at school. They have parent report. Um, we're more limited on the adult side. Yeah. In your experience and
0: in, in your knowledge of the research, how common is it? I know I threw out a bunch of numbers in the cold open, but what what's your, what's your thought there? What do you quote and tell patients about it?
2: Yeah, you did a good job with your research. Um, So really, ADHD is the most common behavioral disorder of childhood. At this point in the United States, it's estimated about 10% of kids ages 4 to 17 have ADHD, um, which is a change, as you mentioned, from past years, even about a decade ago. Uh, We don't have the current statistics, especially after the pandemic has happened, um, but most professionals are assuming that it's probably gone up even more since the pandemic has happened Um, we additionally the statistics are a little challenging to get about how many people have adhd um, because we know that boys are often diagnosed about two times as often as girls um, because of how they present with their symptoms um, things like that Um, but it's very common in adults you're spot on right around five percent
0: okay who, who gets it? I mean, you mentioned that there's a bit of a breakdown or some, maybe some differences between who's getting diagnosed with it, you know, but I, I guess it's a kind of a loaded question of like, who's getting this? And then like a sub question is like, is there like a genetic component to it?
2: Yeah, those are good questions. Um, so in terms of who's getting it, it's pretty common across all different types of people in the United States. However, there are some risk factors, that put you at a greater risk of having ADHD. So those are typically things before birth, like prematurity, low birth weight. If your mom smoked while you were, she was pregnant with you, um, exposure to things like lead or other toxins can increase your chances of getting ADHD. Um, aside from that, we know that really genetics play a pretty big role in the possibility of having ADHD. Um, so, in terms of genetics for ADHD, there's some sh- studies showing it might be the most common mental health disorder um, that can be inherited. Um, so, I, I'm trying to recall the exact statistics, but we usually tell parents and patients about 30 to 50% um, in terms of familial and heritability rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you have a first degree relative, who has ADHD. Um, so what that means, I guess in easier terms is in the population, if you have a first degree relative, so a parent, sibling, a child who has ADHD, you're about six to 10 times greater risk of getting ADHD than someone who doesn't have those relatives. Um, So it definitely plays a role. um, but unfortunately we don't have a blood test or genetic test to tell you who has ADHD Mm -hmm. or not, which is often the question of do I have ADHD? Um, which is what we're trying to answer with our questionnaires, with our tests that we do, um, really looking at attention, executive functioning, things like that.
1: I happened to take my daughter to a six-year-old well-child visit today, and I didn't actually have to fill out any forms that I can think of. But for many of my well-child visit, uh, visits, I had to fill out things basically like autism screens and you know that, that sort of thing. Do we do any general screening for ADHD or is this something that's strictly symptom-based and reported and brought to clinicians?
2: Some pediatricians have started giving a basic questionnaire for ADHD, similar to the autism questionnaires and depression questionnaires and anxiety questionnaires. Um, however, when you look at the symptoms of ADHD, they also overlap with so many other disorders, hmm. um, so the screening is only so helpful. Um, a lot of pediatricians and primary care physicians do diagnose ADHD, so you don't necessarily have to see a neuropsychologist to get the diagnosis. Um, but it's m- more often than not if you're not sh- if they're not sure about it, hmm. the symptom reporting is inconsistent, or there's other things that might better explain kind of what you're experiencing in your day to day life is when patients get referred to see us as neuropsychologists for ADHD. Yeah.
1: Without ragging on our primary care colleagues, because I know what they have to do and how much they're responsible for. Do you feel that having, I mean, you clearly go through a very long evaluation on people to try to get a diagnosis. And I can tell you that that evaluation is probably not happening in a pediatrician's office. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question to you is, do you think that's leading to overdiagnosis?
2: That's a really good question. (laughs) It's hard, right? So some primary care physicians say, hey, if the symptoms are, I'm checking all these boxes and it fits, does it hurt to give them that diagnosis? Not necessarily. Um, So overdiagnosis, I don't think that is truly happening as much as people think it is. um, Mm -hmm. But the rates are higher than they used to be. Um, and more people are potentially concerned about it because of social media and things that happen. Um, so I do think, uh, that's a hard one. Well, to
1: I just am sitting here thinking to myself, like, I don't know the rates of autism off the top of my head, but just as an example, I have to fill out those things because we're screening for it. And there's not as Mm -hmm. if there's a cure for autism. It's like early intervention is helpful for treatment. And I would think that ADHD would be a similar thing that the earlier we can find out somebody has ADHD, the better they would do in school and the better they would do with friends and the better they would do with social situations. And 10% is like a really high prevalence. So it makes me feel like why, you know, if there aren't already screening tools for this, that there should be some sort of screening that's happening on a regular basis to get an idea if we can catch it earlier.
2: Correct. And it's hard because a lot of times some of the, we have to look at ADHD on a continuum as well. Some of the behaviors and symptoms that relate to a diagnosis of ADHD, for example, in a four-year-old might be completely normal Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and it doesn't result in a diagnosis. So Are screening tools helpful? Sure. Do they explain the full picture of what's going on and if they need treatment? No, Um, because someone could check every symptom of ADHD. And then when I ask them, well, how are you doing in your day-to-day life? Is it it prohibiting you from getting things done at work or with your friends or at home? And they say no, then technically I can't give them a diagnosis of ADHD. Mm -hmm. Because even though they have those symptoms, it's not interfering with their day-to-day life.
0: Yeah.
1: You mentioned Dude. the age. I just want to touch real quick on that age thing you said, because you said four years old. Uh, is there a age that, like, what age can we start diagnosing ADHD? Because I do feel like every parent who's ever had a three or four-year-old is like, I think this is clinical ADHD. It's just also being a three-year-old.
2: Correct. Um, so I'm not a pediatric neuropsychologist. I will put that out there. But um, the diagnosis really can start at age four. Okay. Um, but again, it's when they're having these symptoms that are interfering with their abilities in their day-to-day life, like feeding at age four, um, like going to the bathroom, things like that. Sure. Um, different The the complexities of what they need to do are different than, for example, at age 12 when they have homework and everything else piling yeah. on. That's a really i think that's
1: question. helpful framework for for listeners for myself even to know that like yeah. not before age four and probably not often at age four but still to not think about it before age four
2: correct and usually more often than not it's the teachers in in the school that are bringing up mm-hmm. to the parents, saying hey we've noticed x y and z have you considered this yet yeah um with the different types of adhd oftentimes the adhd primarily inattentive type goes undiagnosed mm. for periods of time, right? It might be the quiet kid in the corner who's doodling or daydreaming, but is not a behavioral issue in the classroom versus the kid with ADHD hyperactivity impulsivity type who's throwing things in the classroom and blurting out words and screaming aloud and can't yeah. sit still in their desk. Those are the ones who are caught earlier. Yeah.
0: Jeremy, I would actually make a bit of a counterpoint to you about like potentially primary care providers overdiagnosing ADHD. My recollection is you can just like and again, this is just my own personal lived experience but when I was doing family medicine during residency, I feel like if there was even like a concept of a thought of uh, a parent bringing up about their child or even like um an adult who had concerns about it, I feel like we'd be like whoa 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 whoa, I'm not gonna diagnose you with that and we would punt as quickly as possible to neuropsychologist or a neurologist or, a you know, <laughs> a mother, another what seemed like a more qualified professional than than we. But maybe that was, you know, my experience. But I feel like the opposite would be true words. I feel like it's relatively difficult to find a provider who is willing to sort of take on that role as the diagnostician. So personally, you know, as a as a clinician and um, it, it, I think it's 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 so great to have someone like you Leslie to to be the clarifier
2: yeah and I would say that it's not easy for us either and that's why a lot of people avoid ADHD um because the symptoms do overlap and so many people with ADHD are really high achieving and really bright and successful so then people are saying well how could you have ADHD right because that goes against what they think in their mind is ADHD Hmm. Um, additionally some providers don't like prescribing stimulant medication right um so they just avoid it a lot of the people who are referred to me are referred in from as you mentioned neurologists primary care mm-hmm. psychiatrists therapists who say not quite sure let's take another look at that or they get referred in for neuropsych um, testing if they need or are looking for accommodations yeah at school or in the workplace and need some sort of objective evidence of these difficulties and why they might need extended time on a test or things like that.
1: Sure. Well, we live in a very resource rich area, right? So like the access to neuropsychology is a lot better in Chicago Mm -hmm. than in some places that are smaller or maybe in in more rural areas. But again, I think my my thought process here is that, that just like you would order a test, like an MRI of something to get more information ADHD being a complex condition requires a significant amount of like interrogation, not in a bad way, but in a, in a good way, right? I mean, like we're really trying to get to the bottom of, you clearly have something that brought you here with concerns, and we need to get to the bottom, as you've mentioned so many times, about clarifying, right? And making sure that you have, just like the food allergies, right? You don't want to get a food allergy label if you don't truly have a food allergy. And mm-hmm. certainly, we don't want to put the ADHD label on somebody if they don't have ADHD. And I just feel... I've, I've been to primary care offices. We are primary care doctors. I've, I have many primary care friends, like they are already overworked and underpaid (laughs) (laughs) and they just don't have the time to do what, you know, Leslie is doing with these patients. And so even if a primary care provider, I think maybe in an ideal world, what I'm thinking to myself as a primary care provider could send off the patient to someone like Leslie to do the full testing. And then it comes back to Provider to to manage it, right? It, like daily management can certainly happen with primary care, but now you have like close to objective testing, right? Clearly it's done by a person and it's not an image, but I don't, Leslie, if you have comments on that, please add.
2: Yeah, actually we've been, our field as a whole has been struggling with how can we do this better and faster, right? Mm-hmm. Cause there's such a need and so many people asking, do I have this? Um, and it's not easy to get in and get neuropsych testing right now. Cause there's Only so many patients I can see in one day when the testing usually starts at 9.30, clinical interview from 9.30 to 10.30, and then testing the rest of the day um, with a break for lunch. We've tried to say, can we just do some attention measures in the questionnaires? Will that be sensitive and specific enough for us to come up with an accurate diagnosis? And we know that it's not, Mm -hmm. um, especially because more often than not, most of the patients who are coming in to see me, I'm not diagnosing with ADHD. Um, I'm yeah. often diagnosing with anxiety, stress, depression, um, adjustment disorder to whatever going on in their life right now and saying, hey, let's get these mood things treated first that mm-hmm. could be kind of intermittently interfering with your attention and kind of mimicking ADHD. And then we'll revisit ADHD because I'm not really seeing enough evidence throughout your lifetime that it's been impairing. Got it.
1: And I would kind of add a little bit, I feel like the ADHD diagnosis doesn't come with the same stigma as an anxiety diagnosis. And that's my own personal perception of like, I do think that there are a lot of people walking around with ADHD diagnosis that may also have either concurrent anxiety or frankly have anxiety. And that part is not being treated because of that. So again, I think it's not meant to say something is happening that's wrong or right here, but it just, I think with more specialized, my perception of this interview so far has been like... If you could have more specialized testing on people who were clarifying these symptoms, I think we would get more accurate diagnosis. And because everything you listed there, Leslie, is treatable, right? It's not to say that it's wrong to not get diagnosed with ADHD and then be diagnosed with something else. Those other things are also treatable.
2: Right. Well, so let me step that back a minute. So ADHD is not entirely treatable. Um, So it's a neurodevelopmental condition. Mm -hmm. Once somebody's diagnosed with it, they've had it their whole life, they'll always have it. Sure. You can take some medications that might help with certain symptoms, but other things are probably always going to be there. And you kind of just have to learn workarounds. Right. Or it's just part of how you are. And everybody knows that um, versus, as you mentioned, a- anxiety, depression, other mood conditions are treatable.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, so oftentimes conditions. people coming in for ADHD are sad when I don't diagnose them with ADHD because they can't go get a Adderall or stimulant medication that they think will cure everything. Um, But I said, no, this is actually good news. You know, we figured out what's interfering with your attention and some other paths to look at first before we go down the ADHD path. Yeah.
0: Well, I would like to expound upon what we're talking about here. So if someone comes to see you with concerns of symptoms related to ADHD, you mentioned you very infrequently are actually diagnosing people with ADHD. So yeah, like how, how commonly do you actually diagnose ADHD versus other disorders like what you just mentioned?
2: Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, while it's 10% of the population in children, it's only about 5% of the population in adulthood. Um, So if I'm seeing, you know, 10 patients a week, if they were all ADHD patients, that would only be about two patients a week getting diagnosed with ADHD. And ADHD is kind of a small part of what I do with between the TBI and epilepsy and things like that. So um, it's, it's often that we're not diagnosing ADHD and saying, hey, in a distraction-free environment without your stressors, you can actually, your brain can work well for attention and executive functioning, um, which then it's hard for some patients who have connected with groups, you know, yeah. through Facebook or TikTok or online and they're resonating with that and they're saying, I have all these symptoms, it must be that. It's hard when someone says, no, it's not that, it's this. Yeah. Um, so we're working on delivering that in a clear and easy way and giving people resources.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, a fair amount of mood disorders that can come up that may explain some of the symptoms that folks are experiencing when they're coming to see you. What about, yeah, like other neuroprocessing disorders or like learning disorders? Do you do you tend to see that like reading comprehension issues or how often do you feel like those are popping
2: up too? Yeah, um, so that's a good point to bring up. So there are a host of other neurodevelopmental disorders, Mm. like specific learning disorders, dyslexia, specific difficulties with math um, that do co-occur with ADHD. Mm. Additionally, something that's relatively newer in our diagnostic world is being able to diagnose both ADHD and autism spectrum disorder together. Mm. Um, In past versions of our diagnostic manual, they couldn't be diagnosed together. Um, but we now know that they can co-occur, and we're seeing that more and more often.
0: Interesting.
1: Forgive me if we've already covered this, but I'm—I—I I'm, I, this is for my own benefit here. But I, have we actually gone through like the, a list of common symptoms of ADHD? Like, what what do people generally present with?
2: Sure. Yeah, I don't think we have actually touched with that. So, Let's it. it can really vary. Um, this is not a homogeneous group altogether, especially with those three different classifications that I already mentioned. Um, But I would say that most adults present with symptoms related to inattention. So things like being disorganized, finding that they have a trail of unfinished tasks left behind them. Um, They're misplacing items. People think they're not listening to them during meetings or conversations. Um, Or they find themselves, you know, uh, losing track of what they were meaning to say or to do those are some of the more prevalent inattention symptoms that we tend to see um, there is a whole list in the DSM that we actually have to go through and check off um, letters a through I and then technically for a diagnosis in adulthood you have to meet five or more of those symptoms um, so we give rating forms that we check those off on with the patients mm-hmm. on the other hand we um, for hyperactivity impulsivity, we tend to see overactivity in adults that might present with fidgeting, bouncing their leg, having difficulty sitting still and adjusting their position in their chair often. can also present with things like um, interrupting other people's conversations. Um, you know, like old adults will come in saying, my friends hate when I'm talking to them because I just <laughs> keep interrupting them, or I guess what they're going to say next, and just blurt it out. and I can't help myself and I've tried to stop and I just can't. Um, And it's, they're right. They can't stop that inability to wait because that frontal subcortical brain network is firing at a different pace than a typical developing brain. Um, So those are some of the most common symptoms. Um, Oftentimes in adults, we see them when their child was diagnosed Hmm. and then they reflect and say, wow, everything I'm seeing in my kid, I've experienced throughout my life and was just told like, I was lazy, or I need to pay attention more or things like that. And then they're coming in to say, can we look at if this is something I'm actually dealing with?
0: Yeah, that's really powerful. I actually have a, a friend that that's the exact scenario <laughs> that his yeah his kid was diagnosed. and And then that led to his diagnosis, which I think is a really powerful thing but then now you I don't know it's a it's another way to relate to your child too and then also help to understand yourself more and what your strengths and weaknesses are and and how to cope with that and and kind of doing that maybe you know making that an easier parenting experience as well but yeah that's interesting that it's it's interesting to hear that that happens you
1: know just to some degree yeah (laughs)
2: <laughs> more more often than not, more often than not for sure. Yeah.
1: You briefly mentioned the the like synaptic thing, you know, like the fronto development thing. Do we is there a known pathophysiology of why people have ADHD? Do we know what's wrong?
2: So, we we do know based on fMRI studies and brain studies that it's that frontal subcortical neural network that doesn't develop at the same pace as normal aging peers. Hmm. Um, the frontal subcortical n- neural network doesn't really start developing till those teenage years and then develops into our 20s. So it's also hard sometimes to tease apart what's normal hmm. versus what isn't in those teenage years. Um, there's also been some genetic studies that have small effect sizes showing, you know, the dopamine pathways are more impacted by those genes. Um, but at this point, we, don't, we can't do a brain scan we can't do an fmri scan and clinically diagnose adhd um, but we know that usually when i'm looking at so to back it up before we had brain imaging neuropsychologists we used our tests to lateralize and localize brain dysfunction to say oh based on this pattern this is what area of the brain doesn't work yeah and when i look at my pattern of results in adults with adhd it's things like attention processing speed, executive functioning, which are all in that frontal subcortical brain network um, that are usually impaired or a significant weakness compared to their level of IQ or other functions. Yeah.
0: Can you explain um, or clarify executive
2: functioning? Yeah. So unfortunately, executive functioning is a huge, broad construct, <laughs> and it doesn't have one single definition.
0: Managing all your shit. Yeah.
2: Um, But we typically think about it in a few different domains. So one is set shifting. So switching between tasks, going Mm -hmm. back and forth, back and forth between things and managing those two different things. Um, No one's brain can do two things at the same time. No one can really multitask well. Um, So that's kind of a false thing that's out there. But switching between tasks or tasks. The other thing is inhibiting a response as part of that executive functioning construct. Um, so for example, many people who are probably listening to this have heard about the Stroop task where they have to read the color ink that's printed in blue, but it mm-hmm. says green. Mm-hmm. And they have to inhibit that natural response to say Pardon. green and say blue instead. <laughs> that's really hard for people with ADHD, um, just like they blurt out answers. And then the other part of executive functioning is planning and organizing of information. Um, and that can often be really difficult for someone's brain who has ADHD. Um, So they tend to do better with structured information or when someone says do X, Y and Z rather than do this huge task. And I'm not going to tell you what to do underneath that. It can be kind of overwhelming for them. Um, So that's mostly what we look at with executive functioning. Yeah. We also torture people through very long, sustained attention measures for 13 minutes. You know, where they have to push the space bar every time they see a letter, but not when they see a certain letter and they have to inhibit that response. Um, So we, we put them through multiple attention tasks and executive functioning tasks throughout the day to make sure it's a consistent weakness or impairment and not just a variability.
1: Yeah, it's it's a powerful test because you need that long to probably see the patterns. It's also semi-ironic that for ADHD, you have to go through like an eight-hour test and pay attention through the whole thing, I guess. Remi- like yeah. reminds me of when we have to do concussion testing and the first the first appointment with a concussion is always the longest where you're educating and like they're actively concussed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very similar. Um, the good thing though is unlike your appointments that are short and condensed and you have to get it all done quickly, we can take as many breaks as we need throughout nice. the day. Nice. Um, so we often tell the patient, "Hey, let us know when you need a break. We'll have a planned lunch break at twelve thirty, or things like that." Um, but you're right; it's we look at those behavioral observations too. Is the you Well, know, it seems having... like
1: you'd almost like have to do that. That that's part of it. Is like we want to know if this is something that's truly going to happen throughout the day,
2: right? Or is it just in the morning when they haven't had their coffee yet?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I mean, I I will. <laughs> I will speak from experience (laughs) that is a very harrowing day of testing i'll tell you what um we don't have to go into crazy specifics but just to give you a little little flavor you know i i you know i kind of foreshadowed this but uh, i went through this testing with dr gadati breading and uh and your um associate who was helping me through all the testing who was rad as hell and amazing and i adore her and she was great put up with probably a lot of my fidgeting but it is it's very it's 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 mentally taxing it's kind of emotionally taxing it's 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 almost like physically taxing because I don't know it reminded me a little bit of when you did like those little like achievement tests and stuff when you were in grade school but like to to the nth degree (laughs) like just and then when you think you're done there's still seven and a half more minutes and it gets harder and more complicated and more squirmy I guess is how I would feel with the whole thing um but it was also I mean as much as it was I was exhausted by the end of it it was it felt so validating to have and and I loved the thoroughness of it in the end like yeah it was hard and it was I was tired and it was a little like ugh, like after you've done like a marathon amount of testing like we've done for you know our board exams and stuff where you're just spent and you just want to go home and watch a great British baking show or something, you know, but <laughs> it, uh, I, I, it was, it was very encouraging and validating that, it, that it did, it was so thorough and there were so many different avenues of, of looking at, at testing. Cause the way that I interpreted it through that experience was that there was so so many different types of tests so that you could clarify a diagnosis and not even just that, but then to give me sort of this cool spit out of like, okay, well, here's where you did well. Here's where you didn't do so great. Here's what all those things mean together. So, you know, Leslie, I would love to have you talk about now, someone it doesn't. We don't have to talk specifically about me.
1: <laughs> I'd like to talk about I mean, Julie I'm, some more. Can we talk I'm about open Julie too?
0: And, can I'm can we? Yeah, I'll open up, up up my, yeah. I'll, I'll open up my.
1: This has like, now become co-host therapy. <laughs> oh
0: god, never <laughs> I'm never going to do that to Dr. Gadadi Brenning. Never. But uh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, no, but but really. And then when we met together and talked about the the, ex, you walked through and explained the the results of the testing, it was wonderfully illuminating for me. Um, but I can imagine for a lot of people, it could be very emotional if you if they have a, a set um, conclusion in their mind of where what category they fit into. And then you give them objective data that says, eh, maybe you don't. And that could be either relieving or frustrating for folks. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I guess I would just like to get your insight into how, how that, how that process goes. Cause that was like another kind of hour where you and I sat down together. I think we did it virtually cause why not? And everything's <laughs> a lot of stuff is done virtually. Although to, to be clear, all of the testing and everything that we did together was in person, The like sure. the, the, the day of, of it. Um, I can't imagine if there's any way of doing that virtually. I can't, I can't imagine that could really work.
2: We've been trying to figure it out for certain screeners. It works. Yeah. Um, but for ADHD, it really doesn't work in person. Um, But first of all, I'm so glad that you felt comfortable sharing your own personal experience and journey through this of, do I have ADHD? I don't know. Um, And of course, most people say like, no, you're a really smart, high achieving doctor. There's no way that you have ADHD. Um, And I think that you brought up a good point that ultimately it's not about the label or the diagnosis. It's about better understanding individually where your own strengths and weaknesses are and how to apply them into your day-to-day life and, and what you can do with that knowledge. Um, because sometimes just not knowing is is half of the problem. Um, you know, I have seen patients who come in concerned about ADHD, referred in by their psychiatrist or primary care, and at the end of the day, sometimes those feedbacks are hard. When I'm saying, you know, actually, I don't think this is ADHD, given the trajectory and when these symptoms started, and what you're telling me about times of Momentary lapses, and that we saw staring spells during testing. I'm going to refer you over to see our neurologist because I think you have frontal lobe seizures, right? And that's a very different conversation when someone came in thinking that they were going to get ADHD and sent off to go get some Adderall. Um, But overall, I agree with you that those feedback sessions are what's most helpful um, to go over the data, to process what it means for you, and what to do with it next. Um, Because there are a lot of really great resources for all different conditions, um, but especially for for ADHD, once you know that you do have that diagnosis.
1: Julie painted an excellent picture there of kind of like finishing it and how powerful that was for her. I, I would love to like pick up on that and say, like, what you've now diagnosed somebody with ADHD, what do you do now? Like, what's the next steps for that person that's with you?
2: Sure. Um, so kind of the way that it looks is it's a, I present them with a report that goes over the background history that I took, goes over how they did on each and every task and what it means in a summary of conclusions. I do include diagnoses even though oftentimes as humans we don't fit into these perfect little diagnostic boxes and it might be a little bit of ADHD and a lot of anxiety. Um, then after that are the recommendations. and I personally try to put the recommendations in terms of what needs to be done first and then things that you can get to down the road. Um, So if someone is diagnosed with ADHD, more often than not, I'm saying you need to go back either to your primary care or get a referral to a psychiatrist to talk to them about a trial for ADHD medication and Mm -hmm. see if that's right for you. Aside from medication, um, we also talk to them about cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of learn strategies um for where they're having difficulties in their day-to-day life Um, you know there's we run an adult executive functioning group where people can kind of learn how to better structure things when their executive functioning network doesn't work Um, and then providing good resources Mm -hmm. Um, you know julie brought up a good one earlier uh, chad.org so Mm -hmm. chad.org not going to TikTok or Facebook or all those things, um, to really give them some knowledge to empower them moving forward.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly, you know, my, what was my experience too. And I thought it was great as well that, Dr. Gadadi-Bredding, that you made a point to share my report, not only with me, but you asked me if there was other healthcare providers that you wanted me to share, we, you wanted me to have you share that information with. That makes
1: sense. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, like, my primary care provider and my therapist, and they were all able to look at your assessment and and the thing that we talked about too. And I think that's really great due To like the same way as a sports medicine physician, I'm I'm always sending my notes and such to people's other you know healthcare providers as well. I think that's so important to to I think just showing that feedback and reading that report as a as as someone who's also co managing that patient really can help to give them insight and maybe even help them learn to what things to look for and, and to say, huh, I really, really thought that, you know, Steve was going to have ADHD and he really, you know, doctor Gadati Gadadi-Bredding was, you know, based on her testing and her assessment that it really does look like more, maybe he has depression and maybe I should change the way that I think about sometimes how these symptoms, you know, come up. So I think that your assessments are very helpful and they're very thorough. It's, it's several pages long. And then there's, there's tons of, um, citations and data and stuff to even explain the explanations. It's pretty cool. It's pretty rad.
2: Yeah, we're one of the few specialties that can still bill for time when we're not face to face with the patient, right? Mm. So we still get time provided to analyze and conceptualize everything that we've seen with the patient and to take the time to score your data up compared to your peers, you know, mm. people your age, education, things like that. Uh, so it's it's not an easy, quick process. Um, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, I wish we could figure out how to do it a little bit quicker. We've thought about clinic, you know, screener models to just do a few tests and then if so come back, but most people were having, we were having come back and then it's just another appointment. So um, take a full day for yourself if you're concerned to to get it done. Uh, Most good board certified neuropsychologists probably won't get an appointment for about a year, um, but it may be worth the wait for you. So don't, It's hard to tell this to someone who has ADHD, but try not to procrastinate on making that appointment because the longer you put it off, the longer you're gonna have to wait. Um, Unfortunately, there's a huge, huge access issue right now.
1: Yeah, wise words. You mentioned some of the treatments already, like the the medications. I think you've referenced even Adderall a couple of times. You talked about some of the referrals you make, like CBT and stuff. I realized that you are not prescribing medications, but can you maybe touch just upon like how effective any of those things are, like if it's more effective to do things together or people taking medicine and that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that I, I don't treat or prescribe medication, um, but we do often make recommendations in the report. Um, so... Usually, once someone started on a stimulant medication and it's helpful, they continue on it. It's not mm. back in the day like, oh, we're gonna take it when we want to. No, if you need it, it's probably helpful in all aspects of your life, not just when you're doing this or that. Um, the hard part about stimulant medications, as you guys know, a lot of people feel benefit from a stimulant medication whether or not they have ADHD.
0: Yeah.
2: So that's not a good test as to whether or not you have ADHD, as if it's effective for you. Um, There are some particular results that I tend to say a stimulant may not be good for you. You might want to try a non-stimulant medication or the non-medication routes first because your anxiety is so high, it might shoot your anxiety Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. You already have sleep difficulties it might interfere with sleep or especially in patients with heart problems Mm -hmm. um, because we know that hypertension can be one of the more common side effects. So we can say, well, do you really need it or can we work around some of these difficulties. Um, For the people who don't do the medication, um, mastering your adult ADHD, a client workbook is one that I recommend a lot of times to people. Um, It's really not that old. I think it was uh, studied and written in 2013, if I'm thinking correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, So not even a decade old, really new up-to-date research on how you can work on these strategies for yourself. It was developed to be used by a clinical psychologist with the patient um, but many of the people i'm seeing are smart enough and dedicated enough to try to do it on their own um, if they have the time to do that uh, another good book is smart but scattered there's a lot of great resources out there um, you know there's things that say out there oh if you do if you arrange your fridge like this and it works for you you have adhd I, that's not science um I think everybody who puts things at the front of their fridge is going to eat that first before what's at the back of the fridge. So <laughs> you guys have probably seen all those memes and TikTok yeah, videos about putting your fruits totally. and vegetables in the door of your fridge instead of the fruits and vegetable video drawers. I think it helps everybody. That doesn't mean Right. To
0: <laughs> well yeah, the last thing is, you know, you mentioned these barriers to diagnosis of ADHD. One it sounds like there's a uh, a shortage of neuropsychologists that provide this type of testing
2: oh definitely um in the country there's i think close to 1500 board certified neuropsychologists um we're fortunate as jeremy mentioned that we have a lot of access in the chicagoland area um Mm -hmm. to specialized providers but you know in alaska there's one yeah
0: I I would assume that there may be some insurance issues that may be a barrier to some folks. Would you, what, what is your knowledge of sort of insurance coverage for this type of testing?
2: Yeah, it really varies. Um, You know, I know a lot of people, especially for their kids who Mm. go to see pediatric neuropsychologists from private practice and pay $5,000 out of pocket for this testing. Um, Same thing on the adult side. Um, I work. You know, within North Shore here, we take insurance. Mm -hmm. So for some patients who have already met their deductible, then it's just whatever copay it would be to see a specialist, right? Like $40, $25, um, or sometimes it does then end up eating up a good chunk of someone's deductible. Mm -hmm. For Medicare, it's just the copayment. Copay, yeah. Um, So it really varies, um, and it varies from system to system how many neuropsychologists are available, and if they're actually seeing patients for ADHD or just focusing on patients from neurology, for example, with TBI, epilepsy, MS, things like that. Some some providers choose not to see patients with ADHD.
1: Yeah. So this is a public service announcement to everybody listening to have you know, tell people to go into neuropsychology. <laughs> yes. And if you're yes. looking for an interest, go into neuropsychology. The job security is fantastic, it sounds like. Yes.
2: So, it really is. It really is. I can't can't complain there. But as you know, um, none of us go into the medical field for the money. We do it because we love helping patients and, and yeah. what we do and are just fascinated by it. So, um, And we're all in school for, for way too long. <laughs> really
0: long time, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, like every great episode
0: that we've had, I feel like a lot of the myths and misinformation have already been debunked or, or have already been uh, addressed by, by doctor Gadati Gadadi-Bredding. Um but uh one that I, I I don't know Jeremy if you had any off the top of your heads, but there's one in particular that I really wanted to ask Leslie.
1: Please What's do that.
0: Okay. Um it's that ADHD and autism spectrum disorder can be just lumped together and called neurodivergence. You just call it that. And it, it, so I guess that is what does the term neurodivergence mean to you as a clinical neuropsychologist?
2: Yes. Um, So this is a new term that patients have brought up in my practice. It's not something that we are trained on medically because neurodivergence is not a medical term. Mm. It's not something that we can diagnose someone as saying that they're neurodivergent. Um, But in terms of kind of what neurodivergence means to the population, it means really that their brain works differently than other people's for some reason. Yeah. Um so do people who have ADHD and autism spectrum disorder then would they qualify as neurodivergent? Yeah. Yeah. They would cuz their brain does work differently than we would quote unquote typically expect. Yeah. Um I'm not using the word neurodivergence yep. in my reports. I don't have resources for it. Um, we're still learning a lot about it. Um, I do think that when patients come in and have found a community of people who are saying that they're neurodivergent and if they find it to be helpful to them, I say, well, mm-hmm. if it doesn't harm you, and feel free to continue to you know, assimilate yourself with that community um because even without this testing if someone said oh i just think about things differently right um then they could be termed neurodivergent yeah um but it and is and all I think
0: the podcast and just in general how i like to live my life as a physician and a clinician and just as a person i mean i think using inclusive language and using language that people like to you know to use for themselves and choose for themselves is important um and language is important um, and it is interesting because it, my knee-jerk reaction to the term di- divergent was, was like, oh, good, like a way of kind of lumping some things together that seems inclusive and, like, wholesome and, and we could all get behind it. But, yeah, it is interesting to hear from someone, you know, who's this who's the expert in this field to be like, yeah, we don't really use it in the clinical world. It doesn't really – we get what it means, but it's not something that we would use in our um, – in, in our research or in our, you know, in our uh, paperwork that we're giving back to you or, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's interesting to hear that. And I, um, <laughs> one of my friends uh, came up with the term neuro spicy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to stick with that. Like okay. the neuro spicy and the neuro bland. Yeah. <laughs> but I, then mean, I feel like you're
2: foaming yeah, out. Whatever works the, for the you, normals. right? Yeah. Whatever term makes you happy, feel free to, yeah. Situate yourself with that; it's kind of like a nickname in a way, I think, right? <laughs> um,
0: yeah, and I think it's sort of encompassing a lot of different neurobehavioral disorders. So it seems that to be my my interpretation of it is is like kind of people that are in that sort of neurobehavioral disorder land, you know, which would I mean in my mind is ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, and then some of like the learning disability. Are there neuro neurobehavioral disorders that you mentioned before? So again, but that's everybody's language is open to interpretation as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been trying to learn more about what it means in various people's communities, the term neurodivergence, since we don't get trained on it or tested in it in our medical world. Um, Yeah. But I think it can be helpful for some people to think in those terms. Yeah. Agreed.
1: Can you grow out of your ADHD?
2: That's a really good question. Um, So, once you have ADHD, you always have ADHD, but the way that you express it or how you compensate it for it changes. Mm-hmm. Additionally, some people who are diagnosed with ADHD, let's say combined type at age 10, by the time they're 22, they've learned that picking their nose and flinging it at somebody is not an acceptable social norm.
1: That's very so- reassuring, by the way, as a parent. Thank
2: you. <laughs> I, I thought I saw you doing that earlier, Jeremy. What, what age
0: what, what
1: age did you say that happens at?
0: <laughs> Jeremy, she's been assessing us this whole
1: yeah, time. I'm writing it down. Hang on.
2: Yeah. Um, so about the research does show like big longitudinal studies show that about 50 to 60% of kids who are diagnosed with ADHD have it as adults. Hmm. Right. So that's kind of where the term kind of grow out of it comes from. Because, yes, there's a big chunk that as an adult, if they came to see me at that point, I probably wouldn't give them the diagnosis because it's not there's not evidence that the symptoms are interfering with their day to day life anymore. They've learned to compensate for it or they've taken a job where maybe they don't need to sit down all day behind a desk. But if we were to put them in that role, it wouldn't go so well. Does that make sense?
1: Does. I'm right with you. Thank you. I have nothing else to debunk.
0: Yeah, me neither. Anything, Leslie, that you've come across that you feel like when people make a point to you that you're like, actually, like anything that you you need to debunk?
2: You know, I think the one that actually comes up most when I'm evaluating adults for ADHD, if their parents are able to participate in the interview or send in the symptom rating forms, they tell me like, you know, ADHD, I don't believe that exists you know, when I was young, no one had ADHD and none of my friends have ADHD, right? Because they're 80 years old at this point. And, you know, they're, they're right in a way. Um, Because if we take it back 60 to 70 years ago, the diagnosis of ADHD did not exist. Yeah. Right. So we've come a long way. Um, You know, in like the 60s, it was called hyperkinetic disorder. Um, And it really wasn't even until the 80s that we had ADD. Um, so then it takes a while after establishing a diagnosis for a cohort of people to exist with that diagnosis and for it to be known. Um, so it's not really, it's probably always been around. We just didn't know what it was at that point, And it wasn't diagnosed.
0: I'm sure we'll have a whole episode about autism and autism spectrum disorders, but it, it immediately makes me think of there was a TikTok of somebody was... As like, you know, guy looked like he was in his thirties, having a conversation with his grandpa and the grandpa was like, man, my, my, my day no one has ever was diagnosed with autism. And, you know, like it's just this weird thing that's happening now. And he's like, and this is my grandpa who's obsessed with trains and has an entire room dedicated to puzzles. <laughs> like, it's like exactly. the calls coming from inside the house, grandpa. <laughs> like... yep.
2: yep, exactly. We, we see yeah. it as we, we look at the older generation. It just wasn't there and there weren't specialists in that way, looking at these things. So um, things have changed. They'll continue to evolve. I don't think this is where we're at. You know, there'll probably be other diagnoses of ADHD in the future. Yeah. Um, Slow cognitive, sluggish cognitive tempo is already another one um, that we're looking at um, that's separate from ADHD. So uh, more to come. But if you feel like things aren't quite right, and they're really impacting your day to day life, that's when you should reach out for help to your doctors and, and they'll help steer you in the right way. Totally.
0: Um, Anything else that you're excited about or anything cool on the horizon regarding like diagnosis or treatment of ADHD?
2: Um, The only cool thing that we're doing here at North Shore Mm -hmm. is um, because of the heterogeneity in this diagnosis, um, we're trying to come up with an algorithm of probability um, of ADHD. Is it possible that you have ADHD? Is it probable or is it definite? Um, To kind of help give the patient and their providers more insight Mm -hmm. into the level of diagnosis specificity. Um, So we'll be publishing on that soon. We've done poster presentations and stuff, Um, but otherwise no blood tests or fun things coming out yet.
1: Got it.
0: Anything else you want to add? my esteemed partner.
1: Nope. I think uh, I, I learned a ton on the episode. And as I usually try to point out, if this uh, helped you just share it with one person that maybe has yeah. even said the question, do I have ADHD? Um, <laughs> save them a Google search. They're stuck in cars or listening to things on a walk at some point. So let them listen to Dr. Leslie here and get some more information.
2: I love you guys, it. You guys did a great job. I wasn't great. sure how that would go because I often tend to then get in my head and start not talking at the public level. So good job bringing me back down to that level. Sometimes.
0: <laughs> no, I thought you, you managed it well so. and, and Dr. Gadati Breding to, to quote you, actually, this was language that you used in my assessment. Um, well, I'm, I'm doing a little, a little brief. So it's okay to have potentially speech that's tangential and often hyperverbal. <laughs> that's okay. And if you're worried at all that you might have a neurodevelopmental disorder like ADHD, you should get tested. Listen to your doctor friends.
1: (laughs) The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.